Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Hamilton police officers seizing more guns these days. We're expecting to see a more detailed suspensions and expulsions report from the local public school board. The Ontario Autism Coalition is predicting some pain for students and parents. Many Canadians have thrown in the towel when it comes to owning a home. Movie director April Mullen of Niagara Falls joins us to talk about her new flick. And it's a big weekend for the Hamilton Bulldogs. The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. I know the Hamilton police will be out in about this long weekend, as they usually are every single day, every single waking hour, uh, protecting our community. And um, they're doing a phenomenal job, given the fact that more and more guns are showing up throughout the city. And uh, so much so, a news release was put out to earlier this week, um, really analyzing and describing all the different incidents um, that are, seem to be not connected throughout the city in which guns are showing up. So it begs the question, does Hamilton have a gun problem? Detective Sergeant Greg Slack is with the Major Drugs and Crime Unit with Hamilton Police and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Detective Sergeant Slack, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me. Appreciate I'll, it. I'll ask you point blank, pardon the pun, but does Hamilton have a gun problem? You know, um, it's uh, definitely that was a unique weekend, um, but uh, we have seen an escalation in violence over the last few years. Uh, you know, with uh, the trade of drugs, like so the drug uh, subculture and drug trafficking, uh, guns are a tool of the trade. And uh, over the last few years, they've definitely become more accessible. We've seen more. Um, and we have in the last quarter, so for the first quarter of 2023, we have seen an 85% increase in crime gun seizures, which is concerning. It, uh, and I think one of the trends that we've noticed over the last uh, couple of years is the, uh, the high capacity of some of the guns that we're actually seizing. So one of the guns over the last weekend um, was a, a GSG-16, which is a 22 caliber um, machine gun, and it had a 110-round drum magazine. Um, with it. So that is something that would expel or discharge over 100 rounds in just seconds. Wow, that is pretty scary. Yeah. Uh, in in regards to the stat you mentioned, 85% increase, is that year over year? Yeah, so that's, uh, so um, April 4th last year, we weren't this high. Um, uh, I believe the year before we uh, we think we took about 526 guns off the street, and of those 526, 299 of them were crime guns. So, uh, you know, this year moving forward, uh, we've had five shootings. Um, two of those shootings resulted in a couple of victims. We've seized 48 crime guns since January the 1st. And of those crime guns that were seized, five of them come from traffic stops. And that's one of the unique things, too, is where our frontline patrol, they're seeing more guns now in their traffic stops. Um, and, you know, and uh, like I think back to my days when I first started, I mean, it was very rare um, 22, 23 years ago that it was unique if a traffic stop happened and there was a gun. Like every car would come to it because you didn't see it. I mean, nowadays, like uh, we're, we're seeing these traffic stops that come in on, on a Monday morning and I go through the logs and, and I find that uh, we've had another one over the weekend. It's, it's definitely concerning. Chief Frank Bergen was quoted as saying uh, we should all be alarmed by these numbers, especially after seeing 13 guns within a 48-hour period last weekend. Have you seen anything like that before in all your years of service? No, no. I would uh, I would say that's definitely, I'd call it an anomaly, <clears throat> but um, we, uh, we have seen the increase over the last few years. And, uh, you know, what? Our, my office, the Major Drugs and Gangs office, like we are working diligently to... Uh, 
to to uh, combat the problem and uh, we're doing everything that we can to uh, focus on this concern and uh, we have lots of active investigations um we've uh, we've got uh, uh many things uh, on the go right now um with our some of our active shooting investigations we've been successful in um firearms tracing um one of the things that we've done over the last few years we've actually tr- uh, trained some of our own staff members within our forensics unit we used to send guns off to uh, recover serial numbers for serial uh, serial number restorations. We do that now in-house, and it saves time. And uh, we've actually had some pretty good successes in linking some of the guns we've recovered over the last um, little bit to shootings that we've had in years past. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Detective Sergeant Greg Slack with the Major Drugs and Crime Unit with Hamilton Police. We're talking about guns in this city. You mentioned tracing. Um, Can these guns be traced back to their origin of purchase? Are most still coming in from the States? Are they being gained here in Ontario? Yeah, so uh, what you're talking about is a term that we use. It's that time to crime. And um, when we, uh, we seize these crime guns, we do, uh, do a full tracing back to their time of purchase. And, uh, yeah, some of the trends are, like, a lot of them come from the states. Historically, they've uh, traveled from uh, Florida, Georgia, Michigan, Ohio. But the last couple of years, we've seen some different trends. It's shifted. We're getting guns now from Oklahoma, Texas, um, so some of those states. And uh, different ways to come into the country, too. Um, unique uh, ways uh, drones are being used now. We've had a few cases in Ontario where uh, they've used drones with uh, have capacity of about 13 to 15 pound payload capacities, and uh, they're coming across. One was in Sarnia, one was in Osney. Um, they're using drones to bring in uh, contraband and weapons into the jails. So that's definitely unique, um, some of the trends that we've seen in the last little bit. Would you call that an unfair advantage to the bad guys? I mean, how do you, how do you stop something like that? Uh, it's, you know, it's uh, it, it's unique, and uh, but uh, one thing that's what's good is uh, you know criminals have no borders, but you know the police are the same. We we're arm in arm with all of our brothers and sisters throughout the province. We uh, we share a common with the Criminal Intelligence Services Ontario. We break down those silos. We share information. We uh, we share training, and uh, we work with all these units. And um, you know, with, with those silos broken down, we're allowed to uh, to uh, combat this stuff together. One of the wildest incidents from last weekend, in which uh, 13 guns were seized in that 48-hour period, is the one that was strapped underneath a discarded table that was just on the side of the road at Barton and, and 50 Road in Stony Creek, in which a loaded handgun was strapped to the underneath the table, which could have gotten into the hands of anyone. Yeah, that was definitely scary, and uh, you know. It's, you know, that the whole adage of, you know, one person's trash is another person's treasure. Um, and someone had stopped off to inspect, like, this piece of furniture, take a look at it, and lo and behold, they find a loaded Glock um, secured underneath the underside of this table. Now, think, thankfully, that citizen actually called the police, reported it, and we were able to secure that weapon. And then it was actually traced back to a legal gun owner. Um, it was uh, just, you know, unlawfully or sorry, uh, uh, stored unsafely. And um, it, it, I think it was a lesson learned for that person, a mistake, because they had uh, uh, a few other registered firearms. So, um, you know, sometimes uh, in the normal circumstances where the guns that we're dealing with in the streets of Hamilton, they're, they've been uh, imported, they're illegally here. Um, that is rare um, to when we have the ones that, uh, like that one. Um, but sometimes, you know, uh, if, this, if the guns aren't stored properly um, uh, as per that they're supposed to be, um, they're subject to a, a break and enter, something like that, and somebody can steal them, and then they end up on the street through, uh, through a break and enter. Um, but that one was definitely unique.
We have about a minute. Uh, we've talked about uh, the increase in, in crime guns in this community, the stats, uh, you know, the proof is in the pudding with these statistics. What is Hamilton Police doing differently or doing more of to prevent these guns from getting into the community? So we continue to take a hold of the uh, whole service approach. And one of the things that's been successful for us, um, we've got to work with our front line. They're the eyes and ears of the service. And um, as the information comes in, um, we work with them. We've got uh, lots of things on the go right now. Um, but uh, when uh, we've uh, in the past, we've had a couple of very successful projects, Project Strong, Project Suppression, and that's us working with our front line. And um, uh, it, that whole of service really does work. We, uh, we've gotten quite a few guns off the street, and uh, we're proud of those stats, and we're going to continue to forge ahead and uh, battle this this uh this concern anyone in our community or listening right now who has information about firearms contact police call crime stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS go online to crimestoppershamilton.com and uh, share that information detective sergeant slack appreciate the time this morning best of luck getting all these uh, guns uh out of the hands of criminals in our community Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. That is Detective Sergeant Greg Slack of the Major Drugs and Crime Units with Hamilton Police. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Hamilton's Public School Board is expected to release more detailed data from its suspensions and expulsions report. It's after a motion from Ward 2 trustee Sabrina DeHob was accepted. And uh, Ms. DeHob joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Sabrina, good morning. How are you? Hi, good morning. I'm okay. How are you? I'm good. You want to see this more detailed report. Number one, what details do you want included? And number two, why is this important to do? Yeah, absolutely. I want to see all of the data. I want it uh, disaggregated by, you know, um, understanding where suspensions are happening, who is being suspended, the age of the folks that are being suspended, why kids are being suspended. And I think this is important because we know that the OHRC, the Ontario Human Rights Commission, has told us that there are disproportionate impacts of discipline policies across this province, you know, when multiple larger school boards across this province, including Ottawa, Carleton District School Board, Peel, and Toronto, all conducted similar reviews of their discipline policies, they've also cited disproportionate impacts on Black and disabled youth in our schools. And this tracks with what I'm hearing from constituents in my ward that there are disproportionate impacts to our discipline policies, that kids are spending more time at home than in schools, and that racialized Black immigrant parents want a solution to this. And so I think what this data will do for us is help us understand some of these trends and begin to undo some of these disproportionalities. So what you're saying is you're hearing from parents who are saying, hey, my kids potentially could be targeted because they're from a racialized community. Yeah, yeah, to put it frankly, I think that's one of the concerns that's been cited, which was cited on Monday night by one of the delegates, is that in 2020, there was a ministry ban on discretionary suspensions and on discretion, a ban on discretionary suspensions. And what I've heard from families is that they don't feel like this was actually operationalized, that they feel like their kids are being suspended when they shouldn't be suspended for things that are occurring in their schools. Will this new detailed report look at data just from this past year or is it going to go back further than that? Yeah, so the plan is to collect, to redraft the data from 2022-2023, 
And I'm hoping that once the data is back, we can have a more holistic conversation about um, uh, what does this mean historically? Do we have to go back and look at this historically? And what does this mean moving forward for how we're going to start reporting on our um, on our suspension and expulsion data? Uh, and that's one of the questions I want to ask you. What What do you think <laughs> if we get back the information that you know we're seeing in places like Toronto and other places that you mentioned, uh, and it is showing that more and more racialized students are being suspended? What it, What do you think should be the go forward plan? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of things. I think at that point, we'll have to have a serious reckoning with how our policies have caused harm to some of the most marginalized students in our schools. I think we'll have to revisit um, how do we align like discipline policies that are occurring in our school with our equity action plan. You know, that is something the board has worked on for a really long time. Um, <clears throat> I think that... Um, yeah, we'll have to have a reckoning with the communities who are being most impacted by this. We'll have to listen to the demands of what folks are asking for us in that moment. Uh, we'll have to talk about um, whether or not Bill 197 was actually operationalized and what it would mean to actually materially operationalize this and talk about what it will materially mean to change the outcome moving forward so that we are undoing the harms that we have caused to students in our school, we in got our a, schools. We got a minute. Could this also include a greater debate about whether or not suspensions and expulsions work or are they still useful in this day and age? <laughs> Absolutely. I really hope that that is the direction we, we head in. There's extensive empirical data that tells us that suspensions and expulsions do not work, you know, that they don't support change behaviors, that they actually have um, unintended consequences for Black, for racialized youth, for uh, disabled youth, and faci- directly facilitates the school-to-prison pipeline. There are so many examples of school boards across the United States that have banned suspensions way beyond what we have done across the province uh, um, of Ontario. I know in Dallas, they have banned suspensions completely for all students. You know, I'm hoping that at some point we can begin to have that conversation as well of what it would mean to actually invest resources into schools to support youth rather than kicking kids out of schools. And that is a debate what we certainly need to have in this community. Sabrina, really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm. No problem. Thank you for having me. Sabrina DeHab, Ward 2 trustee, Hamilton Wentworth District School Board, talking about suspensions and expulsions and a new detailed report coming down the pike very, very soon. It's going to be interesting to see what comes of it. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The Ontario Autism Coalition is sounding the alarm as thousands of autistic children are set to transition from the previous legacy autism program to the government's new what's being called OAP core services program. And by the sounds of it, it's going to leave many kids, many students uh, out of the loop. Alina Cameron is the president of the Ontario Autism Coalition and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Alina, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. How are you today? I'm good, but you must be a little worried. We really are. Um, As a community, we've been asking the uh, provincial government for information about these legacy families and when they might have more detail on when this transition was going to start. And they didn't let families know until February 2nd this year. Um, And they did it by updating an obscure website late at night. And so is is part of the the worry or the danger as well that and I've I've read this in some articles that some schools or school boards are are being kept in the dark as well. Yeah, they had no idea. We have we have members in our community who are talking to their trustees who are in fact themselves on special education advisory committees and when we bring this issue up to them 
Some of them knew the transition kids were coming, but they didn't know when this was happening. And a lot of them didn't know about this at all. And there has been no funding allocated to deal with this transition. So how many students are impacted and what is going to be the impact for them? Well, the fact of the matter is, is we don't know the exact number because the ministry isn't sharing that. But gleaning from uh, FOIs done by reporters and by politicians, we figure there's about 4,000 children. And their transitions start April 1st, and they will go all the way until September 30th, meaning a lot of these kids are going to be trying to transition into the school system during the summer months. Uh, it's going to be messy. For sure, yeah. And so what does that mean? Is they're transitioning into, are, are they are they losing stuff? Or are they just being yeah. shifted around? Yeah, they are losing. So while well, some of them will be, many of these children are very high needs, meaning they were receiving intensive therapies. And under the new Ontario Autism Coalition, a lot of these kids will be, you know, getting cut off at the knees funding-wise. They will end up with less funding dollars for therapy, which means they'll have to spend more time at school and we're not exactly sure if the school system is prepared for them. We already know there's shortages of special education staff, um, of special education classrooms that, um, you know, there's already kids on wait lists for special needs classrooms. What's going to happen when approximately 4,000 more enter the system? It's kind of frightening to think about that. We foresee a lot of school exclusions happening. Alina Cameron is our guest. Alina is the president of the Ontario Autism Coalition as, um, who knows, upwards of three, four, maybe even more than that thousand kids are going to transition to the previous legacy autism program to a new program that is just simply not going to meet their needs. In our final minute, I'm sure you have heard from a number of parents who are losing their minds over this. They are. They uh, Another problem that's popped up for them is in order to transition to the new core Ontario Autism program, they have to book a determination of needs process meeting with the minister, with the, with the third party who's taking care of this for the ministry. And they can't get a meeting before the end of their behavioral service plan, which means a gap in service. So they're very, very worried. Absolutely. And rightfully so. Alina, thank you very much for the time today. Best of luck on this fight to uh, have these services retained or at least get the, uh, the best education for these kids. Thank you very much for the time today. We appreciate it. Alina Cameron is the president of the Ontario Autism Coalition. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. New poll out from Ipsos conducted exclusively for Global News. And it shows, unsurprisingly, that most Canadians who do not currently own their own home have thrown in the towel. They've given up on the prospect of ever doing so. 63% of non-homeowners in this country have given up on that idea. Those sentiments are highest in B.C., thank you, Vancouver, 74% of British Columbia non-homeowners right now have said, yeah, it's never going to happen. 72% in Quebec, here in Ontario, it's at 62%. That's the third highest in the country. Lou Periano is the president of the Realtors Association of Hamilton Burlington and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Lou, good morning. How are you? Excellent. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for coming on. This uh, this poll, as I mentioned, shows 67% of Canadians agree that the idea that owning a home is only for the rich, 63% saying it's never going to happen. That, that must be tough to hear. 
Yeah, I thought I thought you said it was 67% of people who don't already own a home, not 67% of all Canadians. But anyway, um, that be, you know the statistics. You know what Mark Twain said about statistics statistics right that there are lies damn lies and there are statistics <laughs> so we, we've got got to be real careful how we use statistics um I, what i took out of the uh, having read the article was that uh real estate is still considered one of the strongest investments that folks can make and i, I certainly don't disagree with that and i think people tend to forget how hard it was for our grandparents to buy a house there was a time when you needed a lot more than 5% down to uh, purchase a property. And, you know, it wasn't always, you didn't have this government uh, help that you have now with multi-generational um, home renovation tax, uh, uh, first-time home buyers uh, tax credit, and, and, and it goes on and on. So, um, you know, I, I don't think people should give up hope, but um, it, there's always been roughly 30 to 32% of folks who rent. And there, there can be good reasons for renting rather than rather than buying. So, uh, I'm not really too surprised by this. And then, if you're going to cite an area like Vancouver, well, yes, it's going to be very, very tough. But there's a lot of other places that have very still have very affordable housing, uh, even in our area. Absolutely. Uh, this article, and you can find out more online at 900chml.com, uh, points to the growing popularity of co-ownership. It found that 74% of Gen Z respondents said they are considering co-owning a home with a family member or a friend. That compares to 58% to millennials, 43% from Gen X, only 33% of boomers. How much um, co-ownership deals are happening in Hamilton these days? Is it just a handful? Yeah, I, I think at this point probably is. But when you say co-ownership and you start involving family, then there's a significant number, uh, you know, and we have no way of tracking that. But uh, but just from anecdotal experience being out in the field, uh, you know that parents uh, and others are involved directly and indirectly in, in purchases. Um, and, and that's just, you know what, if you can show people how to how to buy a property that's that's all they're looking for that's what we do as realtors and so you need some assistance in that regard because a realtor will have that connection to a mortgage professional to uh, you know get you underway we have a couple more minutes with Lou Periano, the president of the Realtors Association of Hamilton Burlington. We're talking about a new poll from Ipsos conducted exclusively for Global News that shows that many Canadians who don't currently own their own home have given up on the prospect of ever doing so. We know that inflation is up, cost of living obviously higher. Uh, has the bank of mom and dad dried up? No, I don't think so. And, and furthermore, this survey said that 43% of Canadians believe that housing will be less affordable in 2023. With all due respect to their opinions, um, I don't think they're based in fact. In fact, it's become more affordable due to the government programs I just mentioned, due to the fact that interest rates are definitely heading in the right direction. Uh, a little tip for folks, when you're looking at interest rates, generally speaking, a one-year mortgage is less expensive than a five-year mortgage. But now we have an inverse in that, where the five-year rates are actually cheaper than the one-year rate. And that's because Lenders want to lock you into five years because they know uh, six months to a year from now, they won't be able to get that much interest from you. So, uh, you know, a tip, maybe go short term uh, if, if your circumstances allow and you'll be, you know, it'll be more affordable. Let's just put it that way. That's a great point. Look into your crystal ball, Lou. What do you foresee for the rest of this year here in Hamilton? Well, what I foresee is if the government, for example, would get real and, and forget the stress test, 
uh, or at least modify the stress test uh, for first-time buyers and for everybody, I should say. Um, as interest rates go down, um, prices go up and vice versa. This is, you know, you can point to history and, and it, it's constant. And this is what's happened recently, right? Rates went up, prices went down. So if you think prices are, uh, sorry, rates are going down, then be prepared for uh, an increase in, in pricing. So if possible, if you can buy now and finance later, and by that I mean just get a short-term mortgage and then refinance later, that would be your best bet. Great stuff, Lou. Appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Have and a good one. You too. That's Lou Periano, the president of the Realtors Association of Hamilton, Burlington. There's also some studies that have been done about uh, the affordability factor, and it points to one that shows that baby boomers, who were young adults back in the 1970s, needed five years of full-time work to save up for a 20% down payment on a home. Today's young adults have to work 17 years to hit that same bar. And, you know, you think about it. Look at uh, over the last 17 years how high house prices have gotten just here in Hamilton. They have more than doubled in the last 17 years. Uh, good stuff there from Lou Piriano from the Realtors Association of Hamilton, Burlington. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. At Nixera, we ensure all simulants obey the precepts. The first precept is do not inflict harm on any human being. Good morning. The second precept restricts simulants from modifying themselves or any other simulant in any way. Watch out! I had that dream again. I thought you would help. Wow, this looks like a good one. It's the sci-fi thriller Simulant, filmed right here in Hamilton and directed by April Mullen of Niagara Falls. It stars the likes of Simu Liu and uh, Sam Worthington, and it opens in theaters this weekend. And here to talk about it is the director of Simulant, April Mullen. April, good morning and welcome to Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Hamilton. Thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, tell us about this movie. This looks awesome. Thank you so much. We're really excited to be playing Coast to Coast. The film is a low sci-fi feature, which involves simulants, and it's not too far-fetched. It's almost like you have your clone of yourself, and if something happens to you, you can activate a new you, which is a simulant, and your loved loved ones can live with that simulant if they choose to. I was watching the trailer yesterday, and I thought, this, and you just said, this is not that far from what could one day be reality. Yes, it's quite terrifying and <laughs> some might say exciting. <laughs> uh, how did you think the movie turned out? I'm really proud of it. I mean, we worked really hard and it was over the pandemic and the VFX in the film was also sort of, you know, very challenging because the world not had any VFX active for three years. So they were very, very busy and artists from around the world pulled together to create the world that is simulate that you see. How cool is it being from Niagara Falls, filming in Hamilton, doing a lot of this stuff close to home? Filming in my hometown or around my hometown is my favorite thing to do. And usually we try to do so just to hire and work with the talented people, the local talented people that are all around us. And Hamilton has, uh, over the last number of years, become quite well known for, you know, movie production companies coming here, filming their films, TV shows, TV series filming here as well. What does this city have that directors like yourself really like? 
it has a very cinematic look, to be honest. The streets are filled with character and unique buildings that draw a lot of filmmakers. You'll recognize James Street in the trailer in the big wide shot. And we really kept it as is. We added, you know, we had the graffiti and we love the textures on the walls and the brick and sort of the older look to everything. And then we augmented it with VFX and just added holograms and a few extra taller buildings in the background. And for, you know, the most part, every single thing was shot on location in Hamilton, which is very exciting. And you will definitely recognize Stelco, which also has this vast dystopian look to it where our simulates are created and fabricated. There's not many places in the world where you can access incredible, huge, vast spaces like that. And uh, we're very lucky that it's so close to home. That's part of the fun of watching a movie where you know where it's made and you're from that city. You can say, hey, I know that place. Oh, I have been there as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you'll recognize all the places, except for the holograms and the extra drones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll keep those at bay for the time being. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is April Mullen, director of Simulant. It opens in theaters this weekend. It is a sci-fi thriller. When you first saw the script, what did you think? I fell in love with the script. I read it six years ago when this felt very distant in the future. And I was really torn up when I read the ending. It's a full of a huge surprise and a shock and it twists and it was terrifying to be honest and it kept me up at night and I started thinking you know what if we can't distinguish between human beings and AI in the future what does that mean for us as humanity and where are we going and where you know where will we stand on what side of the road will we stand when there's a crossroad and we have to choose and it tore me up so much that I was like, I think this needs to be our next feature film. And it just took a long time to finance because the world of independent cinema is very competitive and challenging right now. And we are so excited to say we got it financed and cast. And here we are on the other side of the pandemic and we get to celebrate in theaters. Yeah, six years after you first saw the script, we're on the cusp yes. of almost realizing that reality when it comes to things like chat GPT and, and AI and how scary and exciting at the same time it is. Uh, I want to ask you, we got about a minute left. You've worked with some pretty big Hollywood stars in the past, like Tommy Lee Jones, uh, Aaron Eckhart. What was it like to work with the likes of Sam Worthington and Seema Liu? Sam came to set every day ecstatic. He loves his job. He was so committed to everything and passionate. He would amplify and make every scene and day better. He was generous as a performer, helping other actors. And with me as a director, we were like attached at the hip, always jiving and deciding how to make you know, every single moment count and for audiences to be drawn in. He's unbelievable to work with. He's a mastermind. And then he flew off to James Cameron and Avatar the next day after we wrapped. Like, the man has no ego and he's just there because he loves it. Mm -hmm. And he loved the role of Kessler. I can't say enough good things. And same as Simu Liu, he, he came to set and he was brilliant. He was charismatic, so fun loving. And he really, he added something to the script in the early days after reading that became the ending of his character, which really came full circle. So I appreciated his thoughtfulness and his ideas and bravery to bring it up. And I I loved working alongside him and he's kind of shot into the stratosphere and is a superstar now and just so proud of him and happy to have worked with him and alongside him. And he was an absolute joy. Well, we invite all our listeners to check out the new film, Simulants, opening in theaters this weekend. April, uh, congrats on uh, getting this done and uh, good luck down the road. 
Thank you so much. It's playing in Hamilton, and we will also be there in Hamilton signing posters on Tuesday. That is awesome. April, thanks for the time. Thank you. April Mullen, director of Simulant. Check it out in theaters this weekend. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. You know, short bench and uh, guys putting up big minutes and, you know, back-to-back games. I I couldn't be more impressed with, uh, you know, the determination and effort our players gave out there. Bulldogs head coach Jay McKee commenting on the Bulldogs' success after losing games one and two, and by a large margin. Let's not forget game one, they lost 10 to two in Barrie. Game two, losers by a score of six to three, and then they said, you know what, we're going to turn this series around and held serve at First Ontario Centre in games three and four. So, what happens tonight in game five, and what's going to happen in game six? in Hamilton on Monday and what could potentially happen if there's a Game 7? Let's bring in Reed Duthie, play-by-play announcer with the Hamilton Bulldogs here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Reed, good morning. How are you? Oh, doing great, Rick. How about yourself? I'm good. How's this roller coaster ride been for the team? Uh, this is this is uh, pretty extreme. Uh, if you go back to Games 1 and 2, um, I'm not sure that a lot of people gave the Bulldogs a, a chance to be sitting where they are right now at 2-2 in the series. But, you know, I think, Rick, this started in the third period of Game 2. The team was down 6-1. to one. It looked like, oh, geez, another really bad night. And they come out in the last 10 minutes of the third. They put up a pair of goals, and they pressed to the end of that game and kind of had a feeling on the ride back to Hamilton that night that, you know, these guys, they don't quit. And this might not be done yet. And then, of course, Games 3 and 4, they come out and they look like a different team. They look motivated. They look sharp. They look, it felt like for the youngest team in the OHL, they got overwhelmed in games one and two in the moment of the playoffs, and they rose to the occasion in games three and four. One of the things I was really impressed with with the Bulldogs game, especially in the last couple of games at home, was they have not really allowed Barry to establish themselves offensively. It has been a great game plan and a well-executed game plan that Hamilton has employed to, you know, retain that puck possession. And when you don't have it, go get it and uh, really pepper the uh, opposing goaltender. It has been a, a remarkable turnaround. Yeah, big difference from games one and two. You're exactly right on that one, Rick. You nailed it. It, it was the Barry Cold sport check disrupting everything that the Bulldogs were doing, trying to bring the puck up and out of their own zone, trying to get a, a controlled uh, play through neutral ice to get zone entry, trying to get set up for a cycle in the offensive end. There just wasn't that consistent offense for the Bulldogs to be able to threaten the Barry end. And then on the other side, the Colts, We're getting into the Hamilton zone, setting up and getting high danger opportunities where in games three and four, the Bulldogs could soak in some of that pressure defensively. But it seemed like every time key shot blocks, key breakups, guys like Adrian Rebello rising to the occasion at all 200 feet of the ice. it's, It's a different look to this team and belief is a scary thing when you have it. The uh, leading scorer in the playoffs, Brand Clark of the Barry Colts, has put up uh, 11 points in what really amounted to three and a half games, or two and a half games, uh, suspended yep. for game number four. He's going to be back tonight. I'm sure he and the Colts are going to be raring to go. Oh, absolutely. I believe they're going to get Bo Gelsma back as well down the middle of the ice. So the Barry Colts, are they're going to be ready to go at home. They're going to be excited. They, they're going to look for a little bit of a measure of revenge. They thought that they, they might have been striding into the second round, and the Bulldogs said not so fast on them. So you got to keep your eyes on 
probably the most dominant player right now in the Ontario Hockey League in Brant Clark. But up until that point that he was uh, sent out of the game in Game 3, the Bulldogs had done a really nice job on him to contain. We talked about this before Game 1, Rick. It's not shut down Brant Clark. It's contain Brant Clark. It's stop him from being the one that's going to beat you and force his teammates to do it. If they can do that again, they can give themselves a real opportunity on the road Bulldogs have to win one at Sadlin Arena. If they could get game five, it sets them up for a wild run. How were they able to contain Clark in game three before he was, you know, given the heave ho? Because they did a phenomenal job of doing so. Two spot, two points on that. One is the Bulldogs forecheck. They kind of took a page out of what Barry was doing in games one and two. They were getting in heavily on the forecheck and disrupting Clark. He wasn't getting a few strides ahead in his own zone to be able to bring the puck ahead. And then they were really physical on him. It seemed like at every turn, somebody was taking the body on Brant Clark. When he touched the puck, somebody was going to get into him. And, you know, as great as Brant Clark is, and he's a fantastic player, he's going to be with the Los Angeles Kings next season. If on every shift as a defenseman, you've got to look over your shoulder every time you touch that puck, knowing that somebody's coming to make contact with you, eventually it's going to wear on you. And I think that they might have frustrated him a little bit in Game 3. If they can do that again and just make life tough on Brant Clark to do what he does, that's your best opportunity. We're looking forward to tonight's Game 5 and certainly Monday's Game 6 back at First Ontario Centre, which could be, if Hamilton wins tonight, a series-clinching opportunity for the Bulldogs. Reed, best of luck on the call tonight. We'll be uh, listening and uh, cheering on the Bulldogs. Who had that one on the bingo card, right? Rick, thanks so much for the time. As always, have a great one. You got it. Reed Duffy, play-by-play announcer of the Hamilton Bulldogs. You can get your tickets online, hamiltonbulldogs.com, ticketmaster.ca. For Mondays, Easter Monday night, Bulldogs and Colts, Game 6, no matter what, that game will be held. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode, and make sure you rate and review.